Sponsor CBT Nuggets is IT training for IT professionals and anyone looking to build IT skills. If you want to make fully operational your networking, cloud, security, automation, or DevOps battle station, visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. Sponsor Pluribus Networks invites you to attend a special event on March 16th, 2022 to learn how they are delivering cloud networking. Sign up at pluribusnetworks.com slash cloud networking. If you're a network engineer picking up on automation, you've probably spent some time with Python. Python is a scripting language, an interpreted language. You don't have to compile your code down to an executable. Instead, your code is interpreted for you at runtime. Add to that all the convenient libraries that the open source community and networking vendors have contributed to Python, and you might feel like it's the right place to be for your automation hacking needs. That's an easy argument to make. You've heard me make it myself on occasion. Our guest today is Darren Parkinson, and Darren blogged a somewhat contrarian position. His take is that you should, as a network engineer, learn Go. Go? Isn't that a more grown-up language just for professional developers? I mean, I'd need to figure out this whole compiling thing, and is there good network automation library support like I have in Python that makes my life so easy? Well, I'm going to talk through all of this and more with Darren, letting him make the case that Go is worth your time and effort to learn. He makes a good case as laid out in his blog post on the topic, and I'm going to link that blog post in the show notes that you can find at packetpushers.net. Darren, welcome to Heavy Networking. This is your first time here on the network. If you would, uh, introduce yourself to folks. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me. So um, so I work for a a technology solutions partner called Natilic. Uh, One of our key partners is Cisco. Uh, So we've got a lot of networking, security, and DC experts. Um, We've got collaboration and contact center experts too. Uh, And my background with Cisco is mostly around the collaboration portfolio. Uh, And I've got a pretty long history in IT with various roles over that time. And I've been using Go for a little while and uh, really been just trying to convince some of my colleagues to come along for the journey. So um, that was the main reason for the post, really, and uh, and the lightning talk that it was written for for uh, for DevNet Create. Well, excellent. Now, in fairness to your blog post, you're not saying dump Python, it's garbage, you should be using Go. You're really saying Go is another tool that's worth your time and interest, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm definitely not. Uh, I'm definitely not bashing Python by any by any stretch. But uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's definitely a, a really great language to learn alongside Python. Uh, and if you're already learning Python, then uh, it's not going to be too much of a stretch for you to, to make that transition either. So... Well, let's assume I've been working in Python, Darren. Um, Explain how developing in Go is the same and then explain how it is different. Yeah, good question. Again, I think that's the nice thing in uh, in that the workflow isn't really all that different. So again, as I mentioned, if you've been writing Python code, then you're going to feel right at home. And, And I think that's mainly because Go was designed from the ground up to combine the ease of use of those interpreted languages, but with the efficiency and, and the safety of those statically uh, typed compiled languages. Um, and all that really means is that, you know, I'm compiling my code into a binary uh, ahead of time rather than at runtime like you typically would with uh, with Python. And, uh, and the benefit of that, of course, is a performance boost. So Go programs, they'll typically run 10 to 100 times faster than the Python ones. So that, you know, that's one area, but I guess one area you might have a bit of a slowdown is having to kind of define the types that you want to work with uh, ahead of time. Um, But that does mean that you've got that, you know, that extra confidence when you run your code, um, that it's not going to sort of suffer from a whole class of bugs, uh, which are caught by that type safety. Types as in strings versus integers versus that sort of typing? Yes, absolutely. So you sort of say, you know, this is the you know, name is a string and age is an integer and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, you just sort of have to do that up front. We're, we're, okay. In Go, I, therefore, it is statically typed. I must indicate what type this variable is. Whereas in Python, I don't have to. Although if I remember right, uh, the current versions of Python, you're, you have the ability to do that. Although I don't think it's still required as yet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So in more recent versions, like it's two or three versions ago, probably. Uh, they introduced the concept of type hinting. Uh, and again, that's for good reason, because it gives you better auto-completion, for example, but it also means that you might catch some of those bugs uh, early on. So uh, so that's kind of built into uh, into Go. But that can cause you challenges. I had an issue just today, actually, which uh, where uh, an API that I was using sometimes returned integers for a particular field, and sometimes it returned strings. So uh, so that was a bit of a challenge, but, uh, but not insurmountable. So mm. uh, You also mentioned... 10 to 100 times faster that Go, the compiled executable you get from Go, uh, would run versus a 
Python script. So let, let's just be practical from a network automation perspective. Is that, that's interesting, right? Everybody loves better performance. Do I actually care that much as a network automation engineer? No, it's a really good question. Yeah. So not so much, like in, in terms of the types of things that we're, we're probably writing, I don't think it's really that much of, uh, of an issue. Um, you know, of course, if you're writing some mission critical stuff, then that's going to be pretty important to you. But in terms of some of the things that we're doing, I, I don't think that's really going to be a, a huge benefit. Uh, some of the other benefits are probably more around things like uh, the portability and the uh, dependency management, essentially. I, I find that a bit of a challenge with uh, with Python, certainly. Dependency management, as in um, the different libraries that you need to accomplish certain things and making sure you've done the right imports and all of that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just again, just last week, I was uh, trying to use... Uh, some code that somebody had created and uh, I downloaded it and tried to install the dependencies and I just got a big screen of red text where none of the dependencies would install for, for whatever reason. Um, I, I seem to get that a reasonable amount with, uh, with Python. So, uh, <laughs> well, so, well, if we're comparing this to go, what's better about that from a, a go perspective? Yeah, so I guess there are two, two aspects to that. So the first one being, um, you know, if I'm just sending you my code, I've typically found the installation of dependencies, to be, uh, to be much uh, more reliable. Uh, you can also vendor those dependencies, which means you can actually store the dependencies with your code, which means even if somebody changes them, you've still got them and they're not going to break. Well, and I, I think I just came up with uh, you know, the obvious thing too, just hit me. It's like, well, wait, if I'm shipping someone an executable, they don't have to care about dependencies typically, right? Yeah, and that was the second part of that, uh, that question really, which is uh, if I'm sending you the actual code to run. If you want, if you don't care about the actual code, you just want to run it, then yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm just sending you a binary uh, for your platform, and uh, you have zero dependencies to install because they're all inside the uh, inside the binary. As opposed to what I deal with Python, where I've got virtual environments, and wherever I ship that script, the the assumption is whatever environment that script's executing in. Either if I either I got to ship it in a container with everything that's already there, or I've got a virtual environment and I'm shipping all my dependencies along with that. Uh, or else, right, I run the risk that when that that other platform gets that script, it's going to break. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's really useful. Like if you're sending it to colleagues, for example, and they uh, and they just, they, again, they don't care about the code. You're just, you've written a little utility for them and they want to, they just want to run it. Um, you know, you send them your Python script and the first thing you you ask them to install is Python and then to type <laughs> pip install minus r, you know, yep, uh, yep. or you have to in, ask them to install Docker or something. And uh and it's just a bit painful, whereas I can literally just send them an executable. Um, they trust it's from me, of course, and then they will uh, they'll, they'll open that up and they can just run it on their on their PC. Let me go orthogonal for a second and ask you about uh, Terraform because Terraform is it's really the infrastructure provisioning tool of of note. I mean, we could have we could say Ansible also in a network automation context, but Terraform it keeps coming on strong more and more and more. And there is a tie-in to go here with Terraform. Can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Terraform is a tool that we're seeing uh, being used more and more um, for sort of infrastructure as code and that kind of thing. And uh, uh, and the main tie-in to, to Go really is that all of the HashiCorp tools, as far as I'm aware, are written in Go, uh, which again, you could argue doesn't really matter to you as a, as a network engineer. But if you're potentially trying to write your own providers, which are the components that allow you to connect to your infrastructure, then uh, you're going to probably want to learn Go to understand how, how to do that. And uh, and it'd also be useful potentially to understand what those providers are doing, right? So uh, just, you know, if something's not quite working and you want to troubleshoot something, just having an understanding of Go is going to help you there. Uh, that, that's actually really interesting. So if I were to, again, write my own provider, which we tend to think of as device or platform specific, but it could be, I suppose, organizationally specific, uh, writing a platform. And if I have Go in my tool belt, I have this possibility to extend Terraform in a way that's uniquely interesting to my organization. Yeah, absolutely. There's some really interesting ideas in terms of the way that you can use Terraform. Uh, and I, I've been sort of thinking about different ways of using it for our business data and those kind of things as well. So uh, I think, yeah, some, some interesting possibilities with Terraform. Mm. We have had devs from the Nornir and Scrapply projects on the Heavy Networking podcast in the past, Darren, and you highlighted in your blog post that there's also Gornir and Scrapply Go. What's your take on why this is happening? I mean, it seems like such an effort to build things just for Python, but uh, now we've got some of these tools being built for Go as, as well. What's going on here? 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, these projects are creating sort of Go versions of their tools. And uh, and it seems like, as you say, a lot of investment of time. And uh, and it could be for a number of reasons. And I think not least of which is that as technical people, we just love to learn new things, right? So, um, <laughs> but but if um, if I'm allowed to use buzzwords, I guess there's clearly a kind of an increase in cloud native software. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look at the CNCF, uh, who sort of look after that a lot of that software, then around 80% of those 62 or so projects are written in Go. Uh, and, and of course, that's that's uh, a lot to do with Google's partnership uh, with the Linux Foundation and, and the development of Kubernetes and the fact that they kind of created that uh, that whole uh, area. Yeah, cloud native is a buzzword. You are allowed to use buzzwords. That's fine, because uh, I, <laughs> I think we know what we mean. But you just made an interesting tie that I actually wasn't aware of, that so many of the projects supported by the CNCF are written in Go. It sort of feels like that's the la- if, like if you want to get into source code, you want to contribute to these projects, that feels like the language you want to know. And I would have guessed Java, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Java seems to be one that, uh, that that's certainly around. But I, I, don't, I don't come across Java as much these days. Mostly it's Python uh, and Go for sure. They, they mm. would be the top two I'd see in, in this kind of environment. Because you've got, you've got uh, projects like OpenTelemetry and OpenTracing and the Jaeger for tracing. And then you've got Prometheus for metrics. Uh, you know, I'm sure some of the listeners would have heard of some of those. They're all written in Go. So I think the popularity of Go in general is just on the rise and it's increasing. And I think that's due to the simplicity and the ease of getting up and running quickly. Uh, and of course, that in turn generates more interest. So I think it's all about the tools and the tooling and the available libraries that are there, uh, as well as the communities that are appearing and the, and the contributions that they make. Oh, you said simplicity and I heard a, not quite a throwdown, but that, that's sort of a challenge because one of the things, anytime you want to learn something new as a technologist, it's like, all right, how much of a pain in the butt is this thing going to be for, to, to get my head around? I've got a handle on Python. Do I really want to take the time to learn another language? You know, it's going to be, there'll be a bazillion keywords and quirks and weird things I got to figure out. I, you know, wh- why bother? You're saying it's simple. I mean, I would have guessed Go as powerful as it is and the sort of projects that are being written in it, it would be busy or complicated. Although in fairness, now that I'm thinking about it, Python's sort of busy. There's a lot of, there's a few keywords and loop structures that you like, you learn quickly and you get, get a handle on those things. But then there's, as you start digging through the docs, there's a million other things in core Python that you can get lost trying to get your head around. So you just said go is simple. So I guess, I guess defend that. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Yeah. I, I had somebody today actually just messaged me to say, Oh, by the way, did you know you can, you can do a, a loop in Python that actually gives you the value and the index. And it's like, well, yeah, that's just kind of, that's interesting that you had to discover that separately. But, um, but yeah, I agree. I think Python's, uh, Python's philosophy is, you know, why have one way to do something when you can have 12? Um, no, I'm only, I'm, I'm only kidding. But, uh, but I think uh, genuinely with, with, uh, with Go, it's a bit more like Unix commands. You know, it's, it's do one thing and do it well. Uh, and of course, that lends itself very well to microservices. Uh, which are often heavily written in Go too. So uh, um, it sometimes means writing a little bit more code. So because Go only has like 25 keywords, um, so it's not really hard to learn those fundamentals, but then there's a a huge standard library, uh, which is really comprehensive. And then of course, there's third-party libraries that you can use too. But uh, 25 keywords, okay. But then I end up with more code in the sense that there's not some command that's going to do the one thing for me. I'm, I'll need to use three or four or five commands to do something that in Python might have been written in one command for me. Yeah, and I, and I think that's actually a benefit because if you, if you read Python code, what you'll see is that uh, you, you could see the same Python code written in many different ways. Um, you know, how many times have you seen, you know, perhaps a list comprehension versus just, uh, just, just sort of enumerating that list. And, uh, whereas in, in Go, you're just going to see it written the same way every single time. So I think it just becomes more readable and, and given that code is read more times than it's written, I think that's, um, that's really important. Does that mean Go lends itself to modularity and calling procedures and these sorts of things? Maybe, maybe even more than Python does? Where I'm going here, Darren, is the notion of uh, uh, of dry. You know, write write once, uh, write that code one time. You know, re- then reuse it. Uh, don't repeat yourself, right? The the whole dry principle. Yeah. So it feels like if I'm writing lines of code in Go that um, you know are procedural and do do something that in Python I might have had some weird one off unique command. Maybe I'd be doing more procedural stuff. Or maybe I'm overthinking it, Darren. 
Yeah, but yeah, maybe I think so. It's just, uh, I mean, because there's, there's literally just one for loop type. So there's only you can only do uh, one type of loop, and you can provide different parameters to that loop in terms of being able to to use it. So you you can do everything you need to with it, but it means that you're not having to learn lots of different ways of doing the same thing. There's just typically just one one way. I, again, I'm probably oversimplifying it, but there's typically just one one way of doing uh, a lot of things, which otherwise you might be you know googling for uh, mm. when you're when you're using Python to to learn which is the best way to do it. We pause today's podcast discussion for training talk with heavy networking sponsor CBT Nuggets. I care about IT training because it's been a big part of my IT career since I started going all the way back to 95. I began my IT infrastructure journey learning Novell stuff. And over the years, training's never stopped for me because sometimes I'm going for cert. Sometimes I just need to get a better handle on something new, but I am always learning something to deliver the best networks that I can. As you research your own training needs, consider CBT Nuggets. CBT Nugget specializes in training for networking, cloud, and security. They cover other material too, but they have an especially huge library of training material for Cisco, AWS, Juniper, Linux, Microsoft, and VMware. Thousands of videos, thousands of hours of content, which, which is not meant to scare you. It's okay. You don't have to watch them all at once. Just know that what you need is there when you need it. For example, all of you that are getting into network automation now, CBT Nuggets offers Cisco DevNet Associate and DevNet Professional Training. I have been reviewing the DevNet Blueprint material from Cisco. I can tell you, you are going to want training to get through these programs and make the most of them. DevNet material, it's not like learning a new routing protocol. It's learning how to manage infrastructure as code. And if you're a traditional ops person, that's really what I am. It's a whole new way of thinking. There's so much more than DevNet training there at CBT Nuggets. I've spent some time with the interface, digging through the catalog. It's easy to navigate. I sampled several videos. The audio and the video quality are excellent, and the instructors are easy to understand. They are personal. They are engaging. They are not formal and boring, and some some of them even wear a cowboy hat. Besides the training itself, there is a great support system to help you get a handle on the material with virtual labs and accountability coaching. Now is a great time to sign up for CBT Nuggets. Visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking to take advantage of their seven days free trial offer. Try it for a week. See if you like it. Commit if you do. Cancel if you don't. Seems fair. cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking for seven days free. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. And now back to the podcast I so rudely interrupted. Now, Python has the Pep8 style guide. There's even a a song about it on YouTube where the guy sings about Pep8. It's pretty hilarious. Uh, Is there the similar sort of thing in Go where it's it's very structured and there's an expectation I'm using whitespace in a certain way, let's say, that kind of thing? Oh, that's a a really good question. Yeah, it's not one that I'd uh, I'd thought about. So um, so Go um, actually prescribes what the formatting of that code should look like to the point where it has the tooling built in to format your code. So if you write your code, you can then just uh, run the formatter tool against it and it will automatically format it in a particular style. Uh, so there is, there's no deviation from that. Typically in, in Go libraries that you'll look at, you'll see that the code looks exactly like yours. Uh, I think the comment is it's nobody's favorite, but it's also everyone's favorite, if that, uh, if that makes sense. <laughs> Uh, and it's also uh, again homogenous everyone's using it so everyone's code is going to look the same yeah absolutely yeah okay well that, okay so there's there's an interesting point here about if i'm writing I, I guess a lot of times i think about writing code myself and i don't care so much about other people looking at the code uh because very often it's a tool i wrote for my own thing but if I've got this very well-defined way that the code is going to end up looking and go, and I'm sharing it with everybody else. Well, it's everybody's favorite, as you say. So I guess it's going to be easier for everyone to read and collaborate. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why uh, we talked before about the popularity of Go. And I think, you know, being able to get teams up to speed with it is um, is really important because it just means that anybody who comes on board and starts reading the code is very familiar with the style there's not going to be any confusion about how that how that code's written um, and packaged up. Hmm. You also mentioned uh, it's it lends itself well. Go lends itself well to microservices. When you're writing some kind of a program, Darren, do you think about I should have this be two or three or five executables that talk to each other in a microservices style, like using APIs over the network, or do you? Th- Think about more like, you know, modules within, and if you can make it be one executable, you want it to be one executable. 
Yeah, I think it depends on uh, on the use case for the for the application that you're writing. So so quite often you'll want it to be a single executable. Um, and actually, with with some you know you can you, you could even create an executable that contained a web app inside it as well if you wanted to, um, with all of the files and everything that you need to to, to serve that web app inside the executable. Um, so that that's one aspect of it. If you wanted to do it that way. Um, and that's really useful, obviously, if you're sending a network engineer a tool that uh, that they can use to do their job, then you can embed everything inside that single executable. But mm-hmm. if you're writing an application that has um, a more wider reaching capability, then of course, you're going to want to probably split that down into, into separate executables. Yeah, that will run in, uh, typically running con- containers, probably running on Kubernetes, of course. And, and again, that will often influence it as well. If you're running uh, these things on Kubernetes, you probably will just break them down into much smaller components. Excellent. You gave the standard technologist answer, Darren. It depends. Uh, <laughs> well done, yeah, sir. Absolutely. I, I must use that phrase more than any other. <laughs> Another concept that comes up when you're looking at uh, programming languages just broadly is this concept of garbage collection. C- can you explain for folks unfamiliar what garbage collection is and how much I have to care about garbage collection in Python versus Go? Yeah, that's the great thing, I think, in that you have to care about it as much in Go as you probably do in Python, which, in my experience, is probably not at all. Um, uh, And Because all it really means is that the memory management is being taken care of for you, and you don't have to concern yourself with allocating that memory and freeing it up after you're done with it. Um, And that's only really important if uh, if you're comparing that with compiled languages, uh, because they'll just claim that garbage-collected languages suffer from pauses or stop-the-world events, as they call them. Um, while the memory is being released. And they'll also claim that they're slower. But actually, if you look at the benchmarks, uh, Go uh, performs very well against its uh, its competitors. And uh, mm. uh, they're always improving the performance of that garbage collector as well with every release. And that's nice because it just means you you run a new version of, of Go against your code and your code immediately runs much faster than perhaps it did before. Uh, but again, you know, it's all relative. And I don't think that performance is really going to be anything that we're going to need to concern ourselves about. Again, from a network automation perspective, yeah. Um, it just doesn't matter because of the sorts of... Uh, to me, most network automation stuff is bottlenecked by I.O. to devices. Uh, so very often, yeah. that's Absolutely. so slow that uh, other things that we're talking about here that happen in microseconds or milliseconds are almost irrelevant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think if you were, you know, if you were running a bank, it might concern you a little bit in certain situations, or if you were processing heavy amounts of data and those kind of things, um, then uh, you might look at something like Rust, for example, which um, where you would have to sort of manage that memory a bit more yourself, but actually makes it quite nice. But uh, that's a whole different discussion. Hmm. Okay, back on this compilation thing, I have to compile my program in Go, uh, and then I get an executable, and then I can run it. If I'm used to coding in Python, where uh, I'm editing basically in a text editor, it could be an IDE, but at the at the guts of it, it's a text editor. I save my script, and then I run the thing at the command line. That feels very instant. I don't have to do a lot of... There's no extra steps, Darren, right? So if I have to compile in Go, isn't that an extra step that's going to slow me down and make my development feel kind of ponderous yeah that, that's often something that comes up and people sort of think that you know it's a compiled language so that's just gonna i've got to go make a cup of tea while the code's compiling and i think you know that comes from from years of perhaps using java or something like that but um <laughs> but but i think uh, the way that you describe it is exactly how i write code so from that point of view it's no there's, there's no real difference between python and go so in the sense that if you were to run your python script you would probably type python my script.py Whereas if I was going to run my uh, my Go program, I'd literally type go run main.go. Uh, and that essentially will compile and run my script in one go. Uh, so I don't have to compile it if I'm just sort of in that testing process where I'm, you know, changing my code and then I'm uh, just running it just to make sure it's still working and, and those kind of things. So yeah, literally you can compile and run just in one command. So there's no more effort involved. And in terms of the time that takes, um, it certainly wouldn't be any slower than, uh, than than running that in Python because obviously Python has to interpret that code uh, as well. So um, there wouldn't be much difference there. Well, maybe it's old guys like me that are remembering our uh, university computer science programs where compiling was a thing. It was fraught with danger. You wrote your code very carefully and then you sent it to the compiler. You crossed your fingers and you hoped. It took some time. Hope it didn't barf a bunch of errors back at you that were inscrutable half the time, and then uh, and then try to fix them. You're making this sound well modern, I guess. If I can just do go run and then whatever my uh, my code is, 
and do it all in one go. Um, ah, see what I did there. Uh, it was <laughs> unintentional. Sorry. The <laughs> I end up with a process that feels very familiar to what I've been doing in Python. Absolutely, yeah. And I and uh, and that's again a really good point around uh, you know old compilation steps where you would get a bunch of errors that you, you just couldn't make any sense of. And um, it goes really nice like that in the sense that the errors that you get are you know nice and clear, and it's usually obvious what you've done wrong. Um, but it will catch a bunch of bugs that you won't find until you run your code normally, perhaps with Python. Um, so the, the compiler is catching some of those bugs for you a bit earlier on, which is always a nice thing, actually. So from my experience, anyway. Well, how, how long are we talking to do a compilation? Are we talking uh, minutes, seconds? How long? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I've forgotten now in my blog post, I think I, I referenced um, an article which mentioned that the Kubernetes code, um, which is something like, I don't know, 2 million lines of code or something would compile in about 45 seconds. So uh, in terms of the code that I'm uh, okay. I'm compiling, it's definitely not taking that long. <laughs> you know, it's taking less than a second to uh, to sort of compile and run the code. Oh, and so much network automation code is, uh, you know, even dozens of lines, you know, hundreds or thousands of lines would be rather complex for something that's dealing with network automation, especially if it's just information gathering. So uh, some simple Go code like that has got to be, yeah, negligible amounts of time. So we're making a big deal about compilation for a network automation use case, but but it's not a big deal at all. Uh, Absolutely not. Yeah, totally. Mm. Oh, uh, okay. How does, ooh, I'm thinking about testing in like pipelines and stuff. So if I'm compiling my Go code, how does that, if I want to add this to a pipeline and have testing done, does it look at the text before it compiles? If it passes the test, it doesn't, it doesn't run tests on an executable, I'm guessing. Yeah, again, good question. So that's uh, built into the standard Go tooling. So you write your tests, which uses standard library uh, functions and so on to, to um, add your tests to your code. So you, you know, if you've got uh, main.go, you might have main underscore test.go. You put your test inside there, and then you run Go test before you then do your Go build to create the executable. Uh, so you run that against uh, uh, against yeah against your code, and you could also um run other tools against your code as well so you can search for um uh, race conditions and those kind of things in your in your code as well um, as part of that kind of build process so yeah i always get a nice warm feeling when all my tests pass and all the you know the race checks pass and you know i tend to typically run more tests probably in go than i would do in python um just because it's sort of built in Uh, well, that's interesting because that implies something else that's really important to grasp here. Compiling a successful compilation of your Go code doesn't mean you have a pristine program. It means it compiled. So you do want to have tests in there to make sure that you didn't code something horrifying. <laughs> yes, just uh, just uh, by virtue of compiling it certainly reduces uh, a certain class of bugs by, for sure. But yeah, it's not going to completely fix all your broken code. Um, if, if it doesn't work, it, it doesn't work. So. <laughs> okay Uh, i want to ask you some practical questions now about how go works with certain things that are commonly dealt with in the network automation world and i'm going to assume a lot of folks have done this sort of work in python maybe uh and so let's ask how go works with these things starting off darren with uh with network sockets yeah, and I got a feeling that uh, the answer to a lot of these questions is going to be it'll be in the standard library um, because, as I mentioned earlier, it's it's very comprehensive, and a lot of these things are covered by that standard library. And network sockets are handled very well um, again by the the standard library. So this is in the package called the net package, um, and there are various abstractions depending on what it is you want to do and and what level you need. So you know it's got full UDP and TCP. TCP support if you need it, uh, and also raw sockets to the extent that you could even write your own protocol on top of IP if you wanted. Um, so you can then just call net.listen, specify TCP and the address, and then accept incoming connections, and then just pass those onto a connection handler. Or you can sort of step that up a little bit and you can just use the net HTTP package, and that uh, will allow you to create a, a web server if you want to, or simply just perform an HTTP GET operation. Uh, so there's some really nice abstractions for uh, for networking. And actually, that's one of the things that I remembered looking at Go some years ago, that this seemed to be one of its strengths. And since you brought up, you could even write your own protocol. I believe there's been a number of uh, protocols that network engineers would be familiar with, routing protocols and such, that have indeed been written in Go. 
but and, and as you say, it's part of the standard library. That is, this is built in. This is not some library I got to go bolt on written by a third party to extend Go. It's part of the core functionality of the language. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, I find that to be really, uh, really useful just because one of the things that you spend a lot of time doing potentially is looking like what's the best third party library to use for this thing. Um, and then yes. there's a lot of opinions about those kind of things, and uh, and that avoids all of that. That's not to say there aren't third party libraries. So uh, you know there are some popular third party libraries for um, that, that might you might use in in place of Net HTTP directly, but behind the scenes they're they're going to be using that anyway. So um, okay, so network sockets, we're in good shape there. I can build listeners. I can talk to things remotely, whatever I want to do. I've got full uh, full. I can write my own protocol. Okay, <laughs> uh, what about APIs? Yeah, and again, it depends um, in terms of what you mean by that. But of course, you know you can obviously create your own APIs if you want to, uh, and you can consume REST APIs if you want to as well. And of course, um, Go you know has first class support for gRPC services too. So if you want a REST service and a gRPC service for machine to machine communications, then you can certainly uh, create a single application that would handle both of those. Uh, and it will automatically generate the documentation for open API uh, documentation and, and those kind of things. So, um, so yeah, I think it's safe to say that there's uh, there's great API support, whether you're writing APIs or whether you're consuming those APIs, definitely. I should also mention probably that um, one of the things that frustrates me a little bit with, uh, with Python is when you're writing an API, you're having to use Flask or something, but then you still have to, you know, it says, yeah, this, that's great, but you, this isn't for production use. You know, you have to use one of these other and again, I can never decide which other thing that I'm supposed to use to put in front of uh, of my Flask application, but it's not not a concerning guy. So, for more simplistic stuff like simply consuming a REST API, where you're querying an endpoint and getting data back, is that all standard library stuff too? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so you can just do an HTTP GET um, in its simplest form, but but there's as always there's a lot of um, a lot of configurability to that. So if you need more, you know, longer timeouts or you need TLS support or something like that, then you can certainly add add those onto onto that as well. Um, again, as part of the standard library. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, all right. So we said network sockets. We've talked about APIs a bit, and you brought up uh, REST in both gRPC. How about async communications? Another one of those things that comes up a lot. Just needing to, if you're querying, you know, 500 devices, it's nice to be able to do async stuff. Or, or maybe the questions about parallelization or multi-threading or something, Darren? What are your thoughts here? Yeah, it's a really good, a really good question. And uh, and it's an area I think that is, is um, you know, just a, it's a pretty tricky subject, whatever language you're you're approaching this in. And, and I gather it's reasonably tricky in Python. I think it came along, I, I've definitely not done much of, uh, of the async IO stuff in, in Python. Uh, so I don't have too much experience using that in Python, certainly. But, um, but I believe it's similar to sort of JavaScript where you're using await keywords and that kind of thing. Uh, and for the most part, I imagine a lot of listeners will probably still be writing a, a lot of their scripts sequentially, and they'll just run them in a, in a synchronous fashion, um, since that's kind of how Python's historically worked. Um, even yeah, even to the point where you have to declare a function before you're allowed to use it as well. I always find that a challenge. That, that always makes me scratch my head for a little while when I've written a, a function after I, you know, I've tried to use a function after I've declared it, for example. But um, but from a, from a Go perspective, so Go natively supports uh, concurrency, and it's got this concept of something called Go routines. Um, and they're based on this uh, concept called communicating sequential processes. And it's just, all it really means is that you are passing values between these independent activities, which are called Go routines, and you use something called channels to do that. Um, and I'm making it sound really complicated, but actually it's as easy as creating a function. And then when you call that function, you just put the Go keyword in front of that and that will run that in a separate concurrent uh, process. Uh, and they're, they're super lightweight as well. So, that, you know, it, it's a lot easier than using threads, for example, in Java or something like that. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. It sounds like a thread. Do, when you do a concurrent process in Go, do you happen to know, does it actually spin it out over a different core? Uh, that is abstracted away from you. This is an area where I'm, I probably, uh, okay. yeah, I wouldn't be able to give you too much detail <laughs> behind the scenes on that. I I've read, um, the concurrency book. And so, so I have known this fact at some point in my, <laughs> in my life, but it's not something <laughs> I have to concern myself with in yeah, daily right. life. That's for sure. 
Uh, well, you actually, you kind of answered part of the question. It's abstracted away from you. You can do concurrency. You can run, you know, parallel processes, but you don't actually have to care about the underpinnings too much. I, I'm going to guess you can if you want, but you don't actually need to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, 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 you can certainly configure that to say how many cores and things like that you want to use and those kind of things. But again, typically it's not something in, in day to daily use or you're really going to concern yourself about. Um, I suppose, you know, it, you get the same sort of things that you'd have to, to worry about, which is um, access to variables and those kind of things. So you don't want separate concurrent processes accessing the same variable, for example. And, and that's where you use a, a feature called channels. So you kind of pass data backwards and forwards between those, those processes using something called channels. Please tolerate my brief podcast interruptions that I can remind you of sponsor Pluribus Network's special event to be held on March 16th, 2022. Pluribus is all in on cloud networking, and they would like to tell you about it as they are solving problems you have today or you're probably going to have tomorrow. Pluribus delivers cloud networking solutions that reduce complexity and make it easy for the network to do what the business needs it to. Whether you're operating an enterprise or service provider network, mark your calendar for this special event to be held on March 16th, 2022, to see how Pluribus is delivering cloud networking. Sign up at pluribusnetworks.com slash cloud networking. That's pluribusnetworks.com slash cloud networking. And, and I've seen some of what's going on behind the scenes and folks, there is, there is a lot to this solution. So if part of your job is to support cloud technologies, I believe you'll find this an interesting exploration. So again, to attend the Pluribus Networks special event on March 16th, 2022, sign up at pluribusnetworks.com slash cloud networking. And now, back to the podcast. So in this concurrent world, Darren, what happens when I have one of my processes stall? I've got a device that I'm talking to that's timing out on me because reasons. Um, what, how, does the, how does Go handle a situation like that? Yeah, uh, so you can use something called context. And typically what you would do in, uh, in your application is that you would um, run your Go routine with some context, which says, if, if this hasn't responded within 10 seconds, then I want to time out. And essentially your concurrent process would then time out and return a, a response to indicate that that's, that's been the case in, in simple terms. But the rest of the code keeps running. My other concurrent uh, processes are, are moving along happily. Yeah, absolutely. They're all uh, isolated. Um, so yeah, they wouldn't, uh, yeah. wouldn't, ideally wouldn't be interfering with each other, certainly. I mean, that seems obvious and that makes sense, but I'm just, just clarifying that because there's there's a benefit there when you structure your programs in this way. You're not waiting in a linear serialized fashion for one thing to happen and the next thing to happen and the next thing to happen. When you're running these concurrent processes, you can have a network switch that you're talking to whose management interface has gone belly up, time out on you while the rest of the Go script or Go uh, it's not a script. The rest of your Go code is actually running its concurrent processes and continuing to function for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting because I um, I often refer to my code as scripts rather than like you know executables and binaries. But yeah, they're just scripts at the end of the day. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, you made me feel a little better for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's move on from async communications to how Go handles uh, databases. How hard is it for me to interact with different databases? Yeah. So again, it's a it's a standard library. So there's the database SQL um, okay. uh, package for that, which is a general interface into relational databases. And then you would use uh, what's called a database driver for a specific database. So you know, for SQL Server or PostgreSQL or something like that, um, then you would use those. And actually, it was one of the reasons I did start to use Go as well because of the database support. I always struggled a little bit with with Python accessing our SQL Server, for example. Um, just could never quite get it to work as reliably as, uh, as I'd like. And then, of course, there's great support for the likes of MongoDB or InfluxDB if you're using that for, mm. for, um, for a database. And then, of course, all of the cloud databases, et cetera, are all supported as well. So, um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, great support. Again, all supported <laughs> in the standard library? Uh, typically, but that uh, actually MongoDB, you would download the, uh, the library from, from them for that, for example. But, yeah, certainly for... Um, for relational databases, it's in the standard library yet. Uh, so does that mean they're, oh, backing up a step, 
Python has, do they call it SQLite? It, basically, it's a built-in SQL database that essentially is a text file. It's like a flat file that lives uh, local to that Python environment. And you can interact with that if you don't want to spin up your own database servers. There's something like that with Go? Yeah, uh, a good question. I, I can't remember off the top of my head if it uh, if that's in the standard library, but I know there is support for SQLite. It's not something I use too much, but I'm almost certain that that is the standard library. I don't think it's a, a third-party library for that. I think it's built in, yeah. You keep taking away excuses to, uh, to, 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 oh, it doesn't have this. I'm going to stick with Python. Darren keeps removing them one step at a time. All right, Python's got built-in web server. And I think you actually mentioned this earlier, but Go's got some kind of a built-in web server as well? Yeah, absolutely. It's just, in, again, in part of the net HTTP package. So, um, uh, and I mentioned, as I mentioned, you know, in, in Go 1.16, they introduced the kind of the ability to embed other code, you know, other um, content into to your binaries as well. So historically, if you wanted to write maybe a web app or something like that, um, you would have to sort of send your executable and then send your, you know, your web files, your HTML and and that kind of stuff separately. Uh, whereas now you can just embed that in, into the executable if you want to. Although having said that, there were third-party libraries uh, prior to that being natively supported that you could you could do that with before. But um, yeah, so. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's perfect because it means I can just send a utility to uh, to a colleague. And if they don't like CLIs for whatever reason, you know, they could just use the web flag or something. And then uh, I could kick off a, a web browser for them to uh, to interact mm-hmm. with that executable. Hmm. Again, the possibilities. That is that is really interesting. Okay. Uh, well, we keep going through features here. Let's add another one. Uh, parsing JSON. We all got to parse JSON payloads. I assume this is, let, let me guess, it's part of the standard library, Darren. Absolutely, yeah. There's an encoding JSON uh, library which you can use, uh, and again, it's the one I, I tend to use. Again, there are some third-party libraries that perhaps will improve the performance um, if that's something that's really important to you. But again, for the most part, that's not something that uh, I'm really going to be struggling with. But uh, it's also got uh, the encoding uh, library. There has also got other encodings for things like XML and CSV built in as well. So, and actually, when you're dealing with some Cisco APIs, you know, you still need to concern yourself with XML. And actually, it's been very nice to to work with. Um, and, and basically, what happens is you unmarshal that uh, that JSON into uh, go or into Go types, essentially, which are called structs um, or objects, if you like, uh, and and then you can just work with those things out of the box. Yeah, so super super good support for JSON. So, like, I can take a JSON object in Python and bring it back, typically into a dictionary. Uh, is that analogous to uh, an object or a, a Go struct? Yeah. So what you might do is you might have um, the equivalent of, I don't know, let's say you're, you've got like a, an API that you're creating of people, and then you would have a list of people, for example, um, and that would be the same. So you would have a list, or we would call it probably a slice of, of people. Um, and a, a person would, you know, have all its fields defined. And then you would just unmarshal that JSON straight into uh into those objects, and then you can just start using those objects in your in your code. And uh, you have to kind of uh, use uh, tags to sort of specify which JSON field goes into which um, Go field. But mm-hmm. but otherwise, yeah, it's pretty pretty straightforward. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I was going to say just as often, but probably more often than getting back a JSON payload. Maybe we've got to deal with a payload that's non-structured, like uh, we actually use the script to SSH into a device and run a, do a show run or something, pull back a data set. And then we've got to parse it ourselves, some kind of a parser that would uh, turn it into structured data for us. How hard is it to take unstructured data and turn it into something that's structured in the Go world? Yeah, it'd be nice if uh, if all devices supported something like NetConf or had APIs or something, right? <laughs> but uh, but yeah, obviously that's just not the case realistically. So um, so unfortunately, it's still necessary. But again, the standard library has lots of capabilities there for passing and scanning text uh, and using templates and, and all those kind of things. Um, and I, yeah, I was using it this morning just to, you know standard string functions to scan in. Uh, text into into objects, but um, if you've used Scraply, uh, you'll know that that uses a library called TextFSM. Um, again, it's not something mm-hmm. I'm massively familiar with, but I was talking to one of my networking colleagues, and he was certainly familiar with it. But um, that's been actually migrated to uh, to Go, so there's a Go version of that that library. So that allows you to use a kind of a template based mechanism for passing that semi formatted text, uh, and they've incorporated that actually in the Scraply Go version as well. Meaning I, I can I can write, I can use text FSM to parse a set of text that's coming back to me. It's not 
coming in parsed and then handed off to me as structured. I take the unstructured data, say, uh, based on what I've told text FSM to do, parse it thusly, and now I've got structured data. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, that's one way to do it, certainly, but you could just you could just directly use regular expressions or, or something of, of that nature if you really wanted to. But uh, but yeah, text FSM seems to um, to be a library that, uh, that that's quite... Again, you'll know almost certainly more than I do from a from a networking perspective. Seems to be used quite quite a lot for that kind of thing. Uh, I I haven't spent I don't think I've spent any time with text FSM honestly, although I've I've heard of it. Uh, I have relied on some of the built in parsers or not built in parsers in Python, uh, but some of the third party parsers that are there. Uh, the, is it Cisco that I think puts out the Genie parser? Uh, the Network Decode team has put out a whole set of parsers so that it knows the result of a show run whatever or a show comp whatever is uh it's gonna be a show run whatever is looks like this the parser knows that command should be parsed on these boundaries and then gives you back that structured result set yes um, that's exactly so it, that, yeah. that's the lazy way to do it yeah yeah and i and to be honest this was new to me in the last uh in the last few weeks as well i was talking to as i say uh, to, to a friend of mine who uh who, who knows networking versus uh, myself but um and he was telling he was using Scraply actually, and he was sort of talking me through how that worked and what that looked like. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Well, you said regular expressions too, which is a whole <laughs> other world. Yeah, we don't have to get into that. <laughs> no, let's but, not. Uh, okay, <laughs> okay, let's talk about. I've got a finished project. I've created just the perfect gem in Go, and I'm ready to share it with the world. Is it as simple as shipping a an executable off to people? Um, do I need to? I mean, how, how do I, in, in a grown up fashion, deliver that finished work to other people to consume? Yeah, brilliant question. So, uh, and portability is definitely one of the things I I like uh, one, you know the most about Go, and uh, and we've talked about it a bit before. But that ability to send a colleague an executable without requiring them to install that interpreter and, and a bunch of dependencies is is fantastic. So. Um, and then, of course, we've got uh, containerization that we're using a lot more. Um, so you could argue it doesn't, you know, we don't care about that runtime, but the size of those containers can be can be pretty important, of course, if you're shipping them up and down your network. But one of the ways, certainly, that um, that I would be shipping those executables would just to have a, a pipeline that would run and then would create those executables and then would put them into your releases tab of your uh, chosen uh, chosen platform whether that's github or gitlab and those kind of things but uh, but we actually just include a, a docker file in ours as well that then um we, we can then just automatically deploy that from our from our gitlab infrastructure um which is which is pretty useful yeah so that that's typically how we sort of deploy those bigger apps but yeah there's nothing to stop you from just sending somebody um a, a static executable which i've definitely done on occasion it, like you say it's not the most professional way to do it but if it's just a quick script that you just want to send to a colleague to get him out of a bind then uh, then that's certainly certainly doable well you you typically build a whole container around that executable you're saying though like you'll you'll go you'll anticipate that they've got a docker environment let's say that they can run that container in yeah, that's more for ourselves. So if we're if we're writing code that we're writing internally, that's going to then sort of service various things, then we would typically containerize that. Um, mm -hmm. And and again, that's not you know I did a small test in my blog post which compared the containerization of your Python script versus your your Go script, and uh, I think the Python script was. Uh, was around forty meg or something like that, and then the equivalent Go one was was one megabyte. So. Uh, I mean, it was just a basic hello world, but you can imagine, you know, if that gets a little larger, then uh, mm. that, that could potentially potentially be more. But uh, yeah, some some great time and bandwidth savings potentially to be to be had there. You're saying that was the size of the entire Docker container was uh, was forty odd versus one meg. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, with the Go container, I um, I was using the Scratch image, I think, as the base image for that because it doesn't require anything else to be in inside that image apart from the executable, and then. The Python image I was using Alpine, I think, um, which just has a, a bit more bulk to it. And, and you could, I think, again, in the blog post, I mentioned that you could potentially make the Python one smaller. But often what I find is the time involved in doing that and the, and the readability of the resulting uh, the resulting Docker file or whatever is uh, can be perhaps a bit more challenging. So, Well, Darren, <laughs> you've pretty well convinced me. It's like, Banks, stop being a baby and just thinking you need to learn the one programming language and be open to other things. You've made a really great case for Go, and uh, and there's some advantages there. Uh, for I, I like the portability aspect that we're at this point we're kind of closing on here. 
There's a lot to be said for that as one of the things that I find most painful about Python is dependency management and virtual environments and stuff. Mm. You get a process, you get used to it, but it just it just kind of sucks. And uh, and what the way you can compile down Go and deliver an executable, whether or not a container's wrapped around it, is uh, is awfully compelling uh, just just by itself. But nonetheless, there is uh, if you're starting from zero, you know you got to learn Go. Um, where where would you recommend people start? Are there resources, books, or courses, things that helped you get going with Go? Yeah, absolutely. So lots, there's so many resources. It can sometimes be a bit overwhelming, but there are lots of great books. Um, so there's sort of the official Go book, which is called the Go Programming Language. Um, and then there's the Go Concurrency book, which I definitely would recommend as well, just in terms of doing that concurrent programming. Um, but the, the the place I'd probably start is the go.dev website. So they have the uh, they have a Go tour there, which is a really good introduction to the language. It, it's just a tour where it just takes you through, you know, using strings and and those kind of things, and uh, you know, sort of the basics, and uh, gives you a really good flavour of the language. Uh, and then Effective Go is the is the other you know resource that I would definitely recommend. Again, it's just on Go.dev. If you if you look for Effective Go on there, that gives you really good examples of how to sort of structure your code and those kind of things as well. So yeah, lots of resources. Now, if I know a little bit of Python, it sounds like I'm going to have enough familiarity with programming to be able to jump into those resources you just recommended and make use of them. I'm not going to be, uh, as I like to say, a monkey looking at a helicopter. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, that's how I felt when I first looked at Rust quite a while ago. And uh, I, that, that's exactly how I felt. So, But using Go, no, absolutely. I think if you're coming from a Python background, I think you'll be you'll be right at home, yeah. And if I'm starting from scratch, I really don't know much programming. How hard is it to get my head around Go? Would it be maybe not the right language to start with? Yeah, again, really good question. And I, I had a colleague recently asking me, they were talking about sort of data science and that kind of thing. And I sort of suggested actually Python might be the way to go initially if you've never done any programming before. Um, then, then Python's still a really good language to learn because you can do, I mean, there's there's almost nothing you can't do with Python, right? So uh, so yeah, I, I, I still think Python's a, a great language and it's, you know, it's not the number one language on most lists you look at for for no reason. So, um, so Python's great, but I, you know, if you're, brand new there's no, no reason why you you couldn't just learn go first absolutely but uh but yeah just learn both why not and then you get a good uh yeah. <laughs> some good breath there <laughs> there you go <laughs> well if you're listening to this show uh, darren posted this on his blog darrenparkinson.uk uh and look for the post why network engineers should learn go uh, darren where else can people follow you uh, typically, that would just be on on Twitter. So I'm just at Darren Parkinson on uh, on Twitter. That's uh, probably the best place. Excellent. All the links for the things that we talked about on this show, including the resources that Darren mentioned at the end, the go.dev slash tour, go.dev slash doc slash effective underscore go. All those links will be in the show notes at packetpushers.net. Look at the heavy networking podcast and click through until you find this episode, Go versus Python for network engineers. And if you got value from this episode, I hope you did, but you want even more stuff, join the Packet Pushers Slack group. That's at packetpushers.net. It is free. There's no catch here. You'll be joining over 1,800 IT engineers, networking and cloud nerds especially, and there there are scattered all over the world. Again, that's packetpushers.net slash Slack. And if you get in there, check out the jobs channel. Um, There's opportunities posted just as any people are aware of jobs within their organization or things that any of us notice as we're trawling through LinkedIn. Maybe you're looking for a career change. It's, It's just a resource. Go in there and take advantage of it. Now, if another Slack group feels like it's just too much, I can't do another Slack group. Okay, cool. Try our free newsletter, packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Human Infrastructure Magazine is what we call it, and we send it out weekly on Thursdays. It makes you a better engineer by sharing good stuff about career, how to perform complex technical tasks, IT news that we think you might actually be affected by, which we heavily curate. We don't just throw out anything, you know, any little announcement a vendor sends out. No, we curate it very, uh, very carefully to only send out the bits that we think are going to care, uh, are going to matter to you, something you're actually going to care about. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>